Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Ryan Pryor. Ryan is a graduate of Fuller Theological Seminary and is pastor of the Mission Hills Christian Church in Los Angeles, California. I give you Ryan Pryor. Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me on, Scott. It's always been a dream. Oh, wow. Well, you need to you need to dream bigger. <laughs> <laughs> that, you really should well, that's your probably that might be higher. true too yeah yeah absolutely so you are in la yes sir a, a, a church of the disciples of christ aren't they all this church <laughs> ideally the disciples of christ yeah i guess we're you know what i think is a branding problem generally like with the christian church because it's christian church parentheses disciples of christ like, we need to decide which one we want to be. Are we Christian church or parentheses disciples of Christ? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I read this book once. It was um, or, uh, by this, I think a disciples pastor in Kentucky. Are you a follower or a, follower or a fan like of uh, Jesus? Is the guy in like Louisville or something? Huh, I don't know. And I thumbed through the book and I was like, I think I'm just a fan of Jesus. I'm not, <laughs> and I, I hope he's okay with that. I yeah. mean, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan, but, but I don't. On his thing, I'm not a follower, I don't think. Yeah. But he was, which is good for him. Yeah, I, mean, I think he seemed very devout and genuine. So. Great. Kentucky. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. So here we go. We're yeah. talking lectionary. Does your church follow the lectionary? We do. Um, uh, that was, which I would guess makes you unique in the disciples. Um, it kind of depends. Like I know some disciples, pastors that follow uh, the lectionary. Like some churches are very traditional in their liturgy, and part of that is the lectionary, and then other Disciples churches just seem to kind of throw it all out the window. So um, that was something that I always embraced. I always really enjoyed the lectionary. So when I started here two years ago, I was like, we're doing the lectionary. Let's do it. And everybody said, what's the lectionary? I said, we'll find out. So let's go. So I'm on year two of preaching the lectionary. So it's been good. Or as they say, year B. Year B. Year B. Beta. Yeah. So, so. Start, speaking of year B, yeah. here, our first text is First Samuel 8. It's like 4 through 11, parentheses, 12 through 15, 16 through 20, parentheses, uh, it, 11, 14 through 15. It's it, one of these weird... Yeah. Um, it's a lot. But, yeah. But it's interesting, though, because the previous week, it's almost like, right, there's almost this ironic trading of places with Eli, because Samuel, who is Hannah's child, which is uh, the title of one of my favorite theological my favorite theological memoir by Stanley Harrowas Hannah's child but you have this woman who prays for this son has to give him to the lord and and to a corrupt temple right and and, yeah. and Samuel like it's sort of the opposite of star wars like he's not the sort of fitful like Luke Skywalker come on ben why can't i do it <laughs> he's the he's the jedi spiritually with a sort of inept mentor yeah. and and yet, it's interesting. Now Samuel looks almost like a new Eli. Mm, like, yeah, the people come to him and say, "You, you're old. Your sons don't follow in your ways. Appoint for us a king like the other nations." <laughs> right. We just want to be it's, like everyone else. Like, how? How did you, you think Samuel's in there? How did I wind up in this place? Yeah, things were so good as a kid. I had a. I, I was a contender. 
<laughs> yeah, we just want to be like everyone else, which, uh, you know, for Enneagram 4 is not really very appealing to me, but I, I get the impulse. I get the impulse. I get You're an Enneagram 4. I, 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 I'm sorry. I'm also an Enneagram 4. <laughs> uh, it's a tortured existence, but I, I secretly kind of love it, which is probably a very 4 thing to say. That's exactly. Yeah. Couldn't, you couldn't say anything more 4. Yeah, it was, and it's interesting, too, because like in this text, you get so much... Like right after, like Samuel's like, all right, well, here's what this is going to mean. And it's just, it's violence, right? Like you have this almost Pharaoh moment where he gives this warning in this text where he's like, okay, this is what it's going to be like. If you want a king, it's basically going to be a lot like Pharaoh. And we've been down this road before. Is this like really what you want? They're like, yeah, sure. All right. Give it to us. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because you, this, it's interesting the way God uses aspirations, even really distorted ones, right, mm. to sort of advance the cause. Because, you know, ultimately the monarchy will be part of Israel's undoing. Right. And yet at the heart of its hope for this Davidic king. Right. So it's, yeah. it's, it's these weird sort of. You know, like it's it's interesting if you if you started the Bible if you if the Bible was only Genesis one through eleven, right? <laughs> and then the last chapter was going to be Revelation, you know, twenty one or whatever. You'd say, well, what's going to descend after Babel? Mm. A garden, not a city. Yeah, yeah. But you know, because the cities are the problem all right, the time. Yeah, and yeah. yet, and yet, it's like God uses uses these weird aspirations to kind of bring in the future that. God is somehow stitching in this mosaic tapestry of redemption. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of like a, just such a... Because if you read this, just the lectionary text, I feel like on a Sunday, everybody would generally kind of look around and be like, okay, I guess. Uh, but when you look at it within the context of... And I think that's what great teaching aspect of just the lectionary in general is that you could put stories like this that sound a bit weird on the face of them in the context of this is actually a weird piece of God's redeeming work throughout the whole of scripture. You know, they're kind of getting themselves into um, a lot of generations of, you know, kind of some rough times ahead. But at the end of it, this is part of the Davidic work that obviously, you know, leads to Jesus. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because I feel like on one level, if you look at like the call of Abraham on there, it's all, it's always one step, forward two steps back but the mm. big picture looks like fulfilling the promises like so okay i'm going to make you a, a blessing nations i'm going to turn a, a small people group into a big nation and, and you'll be a blessing and so this in some ways like up to the reign of solomon everything with all the problems seems to be expanding and so the sin is there the brokenness is there but there's a visible sort of it's almost like you're walking by sight uh you know and and you know, as much or maybe more than faith. Then after the kingdoms break up and the exile happens, the promises are all by faith, not by sight, mm. right? So it's it's a very interesting, this is still part of momentum building up to the high point, which would be the Davidic, you know, David and, 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 and a temple and all these things. Right. Yeah, and with a text like this, I, I really can't, I don't know, I'm just thinking about how this might, preach or different angles that you could take. And, um, the, it's kind of interesting, the line where it says, um, that our King may govern and go out before us and fight our battles. Uh, and I can't help but think that that is still something that we can at least collectively as a society identify with today, that we, 
want. We have bad deals. We need <laughs> new deals. Better deals. Listen, it will be the greatest battle. We will have so many tanks, so many ships. I, it will be such a victory. Unlike anyone has ever seen. There will be planes and ships and lots of things. So, we'll uh, even get horses to, to, for, to give a tribute to our heritage. Yeah, I mean, horses. I mean, how, like our what defense budget is like pushing $700 billion. Uh, we had that, you know, multi-billion dollar increase just this last year. Uh, and, you know, there's that aspect of, you know, we kind of as citizens of, you know, the global superpower that we live in, you know, we don't mind the fact that, you know, anonymous people out there are going off and fighting battles on behalf of us, you know, and that's something that is just interesting to kind of grapple with, maybe. Speaking of grappling, let's go on to 2 Corinthians 4, which is sort of about existential grappling, right? We right. have Here Paul is continuing to kind of d- defend his own authority, right? Where it, it, people are like, hey, we're super apostles. I mean, here we go again. We're super apostles. <laughs> Paul, hippie loser. You know, I mean, you, you do have the sense that it seems like these kind of prosperity people have come in and displaced people's confidence in Paul. And, but it's very interesting, you know, the, this great line, he says, yes, everything is for your sake here in 2 Corinthians four thirteen through 5, 1. Yes, everything is for your sake so that grace is extends to more and more people may increase mm. thanksgiving to the glory of God. And then he talks about not losing heart. We know that even our outer nature is wasting away. Our inner nature is being renewed day by mm. day. And th- this slight momentary affliction it's preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. Of course, C.S. Lewis's great right. essay, sermon, The Weight of Glory, is homage to this text. That, mm-hmm. that This is something that I think American Christians probably have a tough time with. But like in, in the, the great history of the church, this is like the beginning of spiritual wisdom, right? That things can be ex- the fragility of life. Things can just be here one moment hmm. taken away the next things can be awful ex- existentially and also enriching existentially right yeah and this is such a just a, such a beautiful text like it's poetic it reads um it reads just really well and it does have this weird paradox of the inner and the outer and what can't be seen and what can be seen uh, what is temporal and what is eternal, what is made by hands and what isn't. Um, and so it's kind of a, it's poetic, but it's also kind of con- confusing in that way. And I don't know, what, what's your take on talking about or like preaching this text? Like if people, cause people will like often come up to me and they'll reference something like this and they'll say something like, well, I just have a, a mansion in heaven waiting for me. And you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's kind of like where this, I feel like when I hear this text, like that's what I, that, that part is kind of just taken out of context. I don't know. Do you ever get that? Yeah. I mean, I hear things like that once in a while. I mean, I, I think that there is a kind of, I mean, this is, this is ultimate, like when Marx says something like, right, religion is the opiate of the masses, mm-hmm. right? Like or at least the pop version of that, that's kind of yes the take, right? Like, so like, if you're a Marxist, 
ideological critic, you'd be like, well, all right, the capitalists won. You know what I mean? Like you're convinced <laughs> that you're getting screwed and you accept your, you know, there's yes. nothing, there's nothing sadder than slaves that love their chains kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Like, I, I don't think that's what Paul is saying here though. I mean, I, no. I think it's more, it's more like this kind of uh well, I could quote, I could just tell you what I think it means. I, Looking over, Frank Lake is sitting here on my um, <laughs> on my shelf. Yes, get Frank. Yeah, and w- like I think this provides like a good opportunity to to delve into this, like as a, pr- a preacher to to really parse out um, a theology of an embodiment, because even in the rest of two Corinthians four, um, two Corinthians. From you know, from what I remember, like you two are very nice, Trump. Oh, you're too kind. Uh, but from what I remember of like this chapter, you know, he in verse ten, like for instance, Paul says, like we always carry around Jesus's death in our bodies, so that Jesus's life can also be seen in our bodies. So, and then there is that line at the beginning of the lectionary text this week. Um, you know, I believed and so I spoke. So there is an opportunity maybe here for preachers. Um, and people to kind of talk about how there is actually an aspect of life and body that Paul is actually trying to emphasize. He's not trying to de-emphasize. Uh, uh, yeah, no, absolutely. It's not, this is where I think the escapism is not quite right. This is this is from the man. The, by the way, my copy of Frank Lake, this particular copy was gifted to me by our mutual friend Josh Redder. He ordered it, and it was signed by Frank Lake, so he sent it to me. So there you go. That's epic. FL, the man. Yeah, that's epic. So Lake says this, and this is in the intro. I think it's like words, eternal words to live by. The natural man in us tends to reject the paradox that mental pain and spiritual joy can exist together in us without diminishing either the agony of the one or the glory of the other. The whole personality may be afflicted by a sense of weakness, emptiness, and pointlessness without diminishing in the least our spiritual power and effectiveness. This is possible because Christ is alive to reenact the mystery of his suffering and glory in us. So far as our own subjective feelings are concerned, any inner directed questioning of our basic human state may produce the same dismal answer as before. The cupboard is bare. While we regard our humanity as a container, which ought to have something good in it when we look inside, we miss the whole point of the paradox. We are not meant to be self-contained but channels of the life and energies of God himself. From this point of view, our wisdom is to let the bottom be knocked out of our humanity, which will ruin it as a container at the same time as it turns into a satisfactory channel. Hmm. So I feel like that whole sort of, I got a mansion waiting for me, is sort of like leaning away from the paradox. Yes. Where I think Lake has exactly what Paul is talking about. You lean into the paradox that, that... this sense in which, like, the bottom knocked out of our humanityness, right? Our it's in our fragility, yeah, that we become vessels, right? Not yeah. in our sort of attempt to protect that which can't be protected. It's like Israel, like, well, let's maybe like the other nations, but they're frail and fragile. Like you just, yeah. mean, they might not look as frail and fragile as you, but they are just as frail. Well, that's okay. We'll take the fragility. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. We'll upgrade yeah. our fragility. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the the aspect that Lake is getting at and Paul and even someone like more recently, like that's like kind of what Richard Rohr preaches. You know, I mean, he's he's really pointing out the inner self is a real thing and that's something to be cultivated. And I think he's pushing back against a culture that futurizes or has the uh, evacuation theology that he's actually trying to emphasize the 
renewing that Christ is doing in the inner nature. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think that, that that kind of mansion escapism and a kind of atheistic materialism are flip sides of the same coin that tr- attempts uh, oftentimes to deny the paradox, right? Like, right. Where this is the eternity in our hearts comes at the cost of the fragility and vice versa. Like, I mean, this is, and it's exactly how we're meant to be. Yeah, it's good. On to Mark 3, we got Mark three twenty through 35, where the gospel reading here, where the crowd comes together. Uh, again, Jesus' disciples can't even eat, which seems like such a bummer. Like, you can't <laughs> even eat. And with his family here, it's just so, it's great. Because you think about, like, you're fantasizing, like, all right, finally my family really hears of my success. Right? And I'm not, I'm not the jerk off that, you know, couldn't floss or brush his teeth right over. Yeah. When they went out, they were saying, he's gone out of his mind. <laughs> yeah, he's lost it. He has lost yeah. it. Yeah, he just, I mean. My- oh, what's interesting here is, and the, and the scribes are saying like, well, he must be from Satan if he can cast out, you know, like. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, okay, look, our, you know, the family, the scribes, look, Jesus, we can all agree, this isn't what you should be. <laughs> no. Yeah, I just like. Wanna, it seems like he couldn't even win dancing with the Jerusalem stars at this point. No, no. But he draws a good crowd. He draws a he good crowd. He does. He does. <laughs> he draws a good crowd. Yeah. He I mean, drew really- the biggest crowd. I drew the biggest crowds. Did you see John the Baptist crowds? Nothing compared to my crowds. We couldn't even eat. Couldn't even eat. Couldn't even eat. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's just a, such a kind of bizarre, because obviously this is a couple of, stories kind of mashed together in the lectionary, but you have uh, the scribes that, uh, you know, everybody, like Mark 3, just, I mean, Mark in general, like by the time you get to chapter 3, everybody thinks Jesus is crazy, except for, and I don't know if like the crowds are just there to just kind of watch the show and see, but you know, he's already like in earlier, like last week we did Mark 3 uh, to chapter to verse six in the lectionary this week at church. Um, and that was where he did the healing of the temple and all that. Uh, and they just leave, like they obviously hate him. And then within context, we miss a couple of, uh, verses here where Jesus takes the disciples up the mountain. Uh, they come down. We have the nice little list in the scripture of who's the apostles at this point. And then, um, yeah, this text is kind of, uh, interesting, but I would probably be most interested if I was, I'm not preaching this text this week, but I would be most interested in why the, why the scribes at this point feel like they need to dehumanize him by saying that he's so far gone that he's, he's of the state, he's of the devil, you know, at this point. So, you know, what's interesting. I I was years ago, I mean, like maybe around like 2003 or something, which is a while ago. Uh, I was, at the American American Academy of Religion in Denver, and I'm kind of a chatty guy on buses and shuttles and stuff like that. And so I'm talking to this guy who's a Lutheran guy, just did his PhD in New Testament, and he did his dissertation on exorcism. And he said, "What's so interesting is that in the ancient world, in both Judaism and the Greco-Roman world, exorcists were considered sort of sorcerers. That it was not considered something good." And we had this fascinating conversation. And then I said, "Well." 
So we talked for 20 minutes. I'm asking all these questions. I learned so much. And I said, well, do you believe in demons? He's like, oh, why would you ask that? That's so personal. And I'm thinking, <laughs> well, you know, did your whole dissertation. I think you think, well, the exorcist, do right. I believe or not? But it is interesting because this sense in which, like, there's maybe there's two options. Either he's one of them or he's over them. Mm. You know, he's he's something different. And you had the sense in which, and, you know, there's this big debate. Are these people afflicted with serious forms of mental illness or right. is it something spiritual? And and I, I think both things. But, you know, the closest I can think of is like, you know, I, I saw this interview with this woman who is a lapsed Episcopalian and said she was ridden with guilt over something she had done years ago and felt tremendous shame. And she thought if she could just see Pope Francis's face, hmm. if he looked at her in the crowd, she would feel it lifted. And he looked at her. And she said she did feel it lifted. Hmm. And I mean, Francis is the closest thing I can think of when I'm thinking right now to, you know, whether he's with cerebral palsy people or prisoners or, or washing the feet of Muslims. And there's something about his presence yeah. that they're caught in his countenance and there's healing. And, and there's something, it seems, that freaks people out because Jesus is able to enter into these depths of human pain right? and neither shun it nor try these quick fixes. He just, he can sit with it and it heals. Right. Yeah. 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 And I think that's the aspect that you can kind of see Jesus's anger whenever he talks about, uh, you know, he tells the parable in this lectionary text and you can kind of feel the fact that he is fed up at this point where, you know, he's healed the guy in the temple in earlier in Mark and he's going around and he's, he's restoring people's, you know, hands like the guy in Mark th earlier in Mark three, and he's doing the work of liberation and restoration. And now these guys who are the most theologically <laughs> trained people are now saying that he's somehow evil. And to, to be able to equate the, the work that he's doing, the work of God to, to like the most evil behavior by these religious officials. Um, you can tell it's like kind of really gotten to him because he does sit with that pain and is able to, you know, liberate and restore. Um, yeah. And it's sort of like the great divorce thing with the unforgivable sin, right? Like, you know, Lewis's great divorce where like yeah. every day there's buses from hell to heaven and people are like, this sucks. Like, I mean, it, the unforgivable sin, right? Is that like here God's spirit is in your midst, right? Like here, you know, you think of like Ezekiel where it's almost like the Shekinah glory, right? The glory mm. presence, the spirit of God leaves the temple. It's like, God's like, I'm withdrawing here before you or I say something we both really regret. <laughs> And so it's like the spirit's right there. And like, that's the thing that keeps people like what gets you in the place of damnation is what keeps you there. Right. This, yeah. this refusal to open yourself up to the thing that's gratuitous, humiliating. It's, you know, I mean, but, but receiving the spirit, it's, it's like, it's the humiliation that leads to humility. Like, Hey, yeah. I can't save myself. <laughs> and, and all my constructs are wanting but yet it's in that kind of thing where the bottom gets knocked out of humanity and you become a real channel yeah yeah well and it goes to like what jesus i feel like is critiquing maybe most here is that the sheer arrogance that this group has you know it's like you're in the midst of the work of god and your arrogance is completely blinding you which might be a connection to the uh, samuel text where the people just have this like kind of arrogance in what they feel like would be best for their lives. And, um, yeah, here Jesus is, um, saying, you know, this is the work of God right in front of you and you just can't even see it. 
Well, yeah. I pray, Ryan, that as people preach this, that the work of God unfolds and that nobody calls the preacher Satan. Right. <laughs> would you would you go there and talk like about Satan or would you just like kind of read Satan? And because that's such another thing that conjures so many images for people, you know, would you address that? Yeah. I, you know, it's interesting. Karl Barth says that, you know, we shouldn't believe in the devil. Like, so, I mean, yeah. my own Satanology, like, I think like, I mean, I think there are dark spiritual forces in the world. I mean, just like right. Emil Bruner was like, I'm not the hugest fan of all the time, but he said, you know, I don't need angels in my theology because I have the mediation of Christ and it's pre-modern, but I need demons to explain the world. <laughs> and so I think there's something yeah. to that. Like, but yeah, no, I don't think we ought to like preach about Satan. Right? Right. I, I think no. Satan ought to not get coverage. I mean, like, yeah. don't give Satan coverage. <laughs> right. Yeah. He's not around the corner. Yeah. No. Exactly. I, exactly. Yeah. And I think if, when he does come around the corner, it's because you give him coverage. Yeah. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's not a, there's a lot of other stuff to preach on. Right. And I would, I would tackle this maybe from the, the, the umbrella of evil and what Jesus is trying to address in his parable. So, yeah. Although if I did do a Satan, I would, it would be the Al Pacino, like in the devil's advocate. That's yeah. Great that's, Satan. yeah, that is, yeah. It's the best Satan. Yeah. There's some right. Maybe, right. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for doing this. Uh, this was fun and we'll have you back on. I yeah. Mean, this is, my pleasure. I feel like, and blessings to the preachers out there. And don't preach about Satan, but preach about Jesus. Yeah, preach on. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe. Or pass it along to a friend via email or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Ryan for coming on the podcast. And thanks to you for listening to Snacks. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.